Welcome back, listeners, to Talking PFAS News. I'm a journalist and your host, Kayleen Bell. My guest today is Dr. Katie Pouch from Fort Worth, Texas. She's an assistant professor at the University of North Texas Health Science Centre. Two years ago, a group of scientists from NRDC, the Natural Resources Defence Council, and the Endocrine Disruption Exchange began to wonder how much do we know about the health effects of PFAS beyond PFOA and PFOS, and thus began the PFAS Tox database project, the building of an interactive database of all the publicly available health and toxicology studies organised into 15 health outcome categories. Dr Katie Pouch and colleagues released the PFAS Tox database in April this year. The database currently includes 29 of the most commonly studied PFAS mapped to 15 health outcome categories. Katie says what they found was quite a surprise. Contrary to the notion that there's very little research on replacement PFAS, the PFAS Tox database identified 742 studies on 29 select PFAS other than PFOS and PFOA that have been measured in the environment or in people. Many of the findings reflect health effects already linked to PFOA and PFOS, yet few PFAS in the database have received regulatory attention. Kenny says it will take many more years for the government to evaluate each PFAS individually and make decisions about managing exposure. Meanwhile, PFAS manufacturers continue to make and use new PFAS with very little oversight. This is one reason why experts in the field are urging the management of all PFAS as a single class of chemicals. Katie says the purpose of this database is to support governments, businesses, academics and impacted citizens in quickly assessing the state of the science so they can make timely decisions that protect public health and the environment. For today's discussion, you might find it helpful to have the PFAS Tox database open, but you can certainly listen to the episode without that. Now to today's discussion. I'm Dr. Katie Pouch. I'm an assistant professor at the University of North Texas Health Science Center. I do that part-time, and then in the other part of my time, I am an independent scientist, and my training is really in the work that I'm going to talk to you about today, which is in developing these systematic reviews and systematic evidence maps, like the PFAS Tox database. I understand you have a background in developmental biology. Yes. My PhD was definitely in the lab at the University of Missouri, where I studied endocrine-disrupting chemicals that act like estrogen in our body. And then after that, I did a postdoc at the National Toxicology Program, where I expanded into this world of systematic evidence review. So does a developmental biologist specialize in endocrine disruptors? Is that fair to say? Not all developmental biologists, no, but that was the focus of my training. You've just released a wonderful PFAS toxicity database. Yes. So it's a database that summarizes or kind of catalogs the existing literature on 29 different PFAS. And so these are PFAS beyond PFOA and PFOS, PFAS. Are they all short-chain PFAS? They are not. There's a lot of chemical abbreviations I'm not familiar with there. It seems like there are always new PFAS coming out or being recognized. Would you agree with that? It certainly seems that way. I was shocked one day when I was trying to find a reference for the 5,000 chemicals in the class. And when I went to find that, the EPA's list 
I found that the list had actually been updated to 9,000 CFAS. So yes, there seems to be an ever-growing list. And that's honestly one of the reasons why I wanted to create this database, because it's almost like this alphabet soup of abbreviations. And so I, for myself and for my work, I needed a way to organize the information to make it easy to keep track of which different chemicals were associated with different health impacts. It's interesting that you say about the 9,000 because I noticed the same thing and I looked at it and said, can that be right? Could it honestly have grown, you know, by 4,000 PFAS? I don't know the backstory there. I believe you had an all-female team and you've got detail of their background and how they contributed to the work, this incredible resource that your team have created. Could you just give me a little bit of a short summary of the people that were involved? Were they all researchers or what sort of backgrounds did they come from? We are very proud of the fact that we are an all-female team. We think that's pretty awesome. And... We come from a variety of backgrounds. We have expertise in systematic review methodology. We have expertise in animal toxicological studies. And members of our team have expertise in epidemiological study design. And then also in in vitro and cell culture design. This is really important because these are the different types of studies that are featured in the PFAS tax database. And of course, we also had Ms. Keisha Rose, who is a project manager at Tableau and was very instrumental in the building out of the database and the functionality. If I understand correctly, these women that you worked with, they understand the studies that you have collated. They understand them. Yes, all of us have practiced at the bench these different types of studies. We've all published in these different fields, not necessarily with PFAS, but with other environmental chemicals. And we are very fortunate for the great scientists who have worked on this. Last year during the pandemic in June 2020, there was a paper that came out in Environmental Science and Technology Letters and you were on the team there talking about the scientific basis for managing PFAS as a chemical class. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as part of that team. Could you give me a super quick summary of that one and I'll put a link up for people to look at? Yeah. So PFAS, as we mentioned, represents a class of over 9,000 different chemicals. And the current regulatory process, you know, doing risk assessment and then moving into risk management is really mostly based on this chemical by chemical approach. And it's really slow. And there's no feasible way in which we can evaluate on an individual basis every single one of these PFAS, not to mention all the other chemicals that we need to evaluate. So PFAS share many chemical similarities and other types of chemical profile similarities. So one in particular that they share is this extreme persistence. And we think that that reason alone is enough to regulate and manage PFAS as a class. Yes, I've talked about that with Professor Ian Cousins, who has written the essential use paper, which you refer to in this paper that your team have written. So listeners are well aware of that one from episode 21. So we've just talked about the wonderful team that you worked with to put this PFAS toxicity database together, the PFAS tox database. How long did it take your team to do this incredible work? It takes an amazing amount of time. We started with the literature searching, we started crafting the literature searches early to mid 2019. 
the very first thing that we did was to draft a protocol and publish a protocol for the conduct of how the literature search and the screening and the data coding would occur. And that's a very important first step because it allows us to get feedback from a variety of readers and users. And so that happened, I think, in June of 2019. And so it's taken from then until now to screen and extract the data. And our first literature search retrieved over 16,000 records just from a PubMed database. 16,000? Yeah, the literature searches retrieved over 16,000. Could you briefly explain, on your PFAS Talks database, you have you know, the four tabs, the database, the chemicals, the health outcomes. And of course, people can read about the project and see the details of your wonderful female team that worked on this. Can you briefly explain when people click on each of those tabs, what they're going to see and why it's important? The main tab and the most important tab is the database. And that is really where you will go to find the heat map and all the different ways to filter the data. And it's, it's really the meat of the project. The other two tabs or the next two tabs, chemicals and health outcomes, are meant to provide users with a little bit more context. So on the health outcomes tab, it's kind of just really a glossary for the different types of studies that we saw in the database. And so you see different headers things like body weight, size and growth, or the nervous system and behavior. And we give a brief description of what is encompassed in that health outcome category. And then we provide some specific examples of the types of studies that fall into that health outcome that we observed when we were screening the literature. And so these are broken out into the three different study types that you'll see in the database. And there's little icons there to help guide you. The first one that you'll see is two people standing by side by side, and those represent the human epidemiological studies. And then we have a little mouse icon to represent all the animal studies. Then there's a little test tube that just represents the in vitro or the cell culture studies where people have isolated cells and treated them either in a dish or in a flask or something along those lines. Katie, when you look at the health outcomes, it's easy for people that have been exposed to PFAS, which is a, a huge portion of our listeners, um, it's easy for them to look at such a list and I imagine feel overwhelmed when they see um, all of these different uh, headings that you have there, the endocrine system, the circulatory system, cell toxicity, immune system, cancer, nervous system. When they look at this list, what would you say to people that have been exposed to PFAS when they look at this list? How should they read it? What level of understanding do they need to have about this list and the work that you've done? That's a really great question, and it allows me to be very transparent in what the database is showing. Just to be very clear that these numbers when you see a number in a cell, for example, where a PFAS and a health outcome come together, that really represents just an acknowledgement that a study has been published, that an endpoint that falls in that category has been looked at. It does not necessarily mean that there were significant effects that were reported in that study. 
The other aspect of that is that some of the studies are have evaluated endpoints that are not very specific and they're not very sensitive. So you really have to have a, a deeper understanding of the studies that are there before you would make the conclusion that this chemical is associated with this health outcome category at large. Okay, so it would be incorrect for somebody to look at your health outcome list and report that PFAS has a major impact on all of those headings. That is correct. We cannot determine that at this point just from looking at the data at this level. Can you please explain what a heat map is? Certainly. I refer to this as a heat map because the color gradient changes from light to dark. When you're looking at the database, there are three columns under each health outcome category. The green studies are the human epidemiological studies, and the blue are the animal studies, and the orange are in vitro or cell culture studies. And the heat map aspect just means that when there are fewer studies in a cell, then it's a lighter color, and when there are more studies, then it's a darker color. So that would mean if people wanted to quickly see what have scientists and researchers focused on, they can go to the darker colours in the health outcome category and they can see that the most literature has been done in those areas regarding that particular PFAS chemical. Yeah, you summarised that quite perfectly, that it's where the research has focused. It's not where there's overwhelming evidence of effect. Okay, awesome. So now, who do you think will benefit from this incredible resource that you've created I hope that it benefits a lot of different stakeholders. And honestly, that's one of the difficulties of building this is meeting a lot of different needs. But here in the States, we have a lot of state agencies that have undertaken to pursue and promulgate their own drinking water standards. And a lot of times they're either faced with the option of using another state analysis and risk assessment process or conducting their own. And if, for example, a state wanted to evaluate PFNA in the database right now, there's over 434, or there are 434 health or toxicological studies for just that one chemical. And so if a state or agency wanted to do that, now they have ready access to that list of studies. They can download that and dig in deeper and find the studies that are most informative for studying health protective regulations. Katie, what's the best way for people to navigate the use of your database to find out how to use it? Well, the very first time that you come to the database or the first few times, I really recommend the how-to guide. So at the very top of the page, there's a box that says how to use, and you can click on that, and there's some helpful tips that will show up that kind of guide you to the setup of what you see when you come to the PFAS talks database, including how to use the study filters. And I will tell you now that you can apply more than one filter at a time. And hopefully a lot of people can benefit from the use of this database because there are a lot of people that are different types of stakeholders when it comes to PFAS. So certainly one group that we have targeted are people who are involved in the regulation of PFAS. Another really important group are impacted community members and impacted communities because 
finding this information and sorting through complicated literature databases where you have a lot of non-specific results that come in can be difficult. I'd like to step in there because I think one of the challenges for communities in Australia at least has been when they do find studies and they share them or they quote them in a community town meeting, they're often told that the literature is not peer-reviewed or it's not quality literature. That is something that we hear time and time again. I think one of the advantages that I see is people can look at your peer-reviewed articles you and your team have selected and collated, and it will really help communities to know that they can trust the information. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Everything that is in the database has been peer-reviewed. I will say that there's a difference between whether or not a study addresses the research question in a quality way, and that takes a little bit more nuance and understanding about what exactly the question is and whether or not a given study was designed correctly to answer that question. Okay, you've collated them, but you're not necessarily commenting on whether the study actually achieved its goal. Correct. We are providing no interpretation in terms of whether this was a quality study. It's a quantitative collection. It's it's about numbers more than quality of study, but they're still peer-reviewed. They are still peer-reviewed, yeah. And it's, you're right, this is more of a quantitative collection and we have not evaluated Katie, you live in Fort Worth, Texas. I found an article about PFAS in your area from the Fort Worth's Naval Air Station. Do you know much about that or do you know much about PFAS in your area? I only know what has been achieved or received through the FOIA request that Environmental Working Group filed. So FOIA here in the United States is the Freedom of Information Act, and it allows individuals or organizations to request documents from the federal government. And when the Environmental Working Group did that, they did uncover testing results for PFAS across the country. And I looked specifically at the ones that were received from the Naval Air Station, and there were alarmingly high levels of PFAS in the groundwater at that station. I noticed that you were quoted in an article that was written last year in July by Haley Samsel for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. And in that article, you said, we know that PFAS can have very harmful effects in humans, and this evidence is supported by the science that has been produced in lots of different animal species. And in humans, we know that they are associated with development of certain cancers and with a decreased immune response, particularly in children. So kids have a decreased ability to respond to vaccines when they are exposed to these chemicals. Is that work that you've done yourself? That is not work that I've done myself. That is a lot of work that has been done by many other brilliant scientists. And the National Toxicology Program actually did a really great review summarizing the immune effects, especially the ones in children. I've read a few articles that have alluded to the possibility of PFAS leading to worse outcomes from COVID-19. Have you read studies that you would say are solid studies regarding that? I unfortunately, I've heard them and I've read the abstracts, but I have not dug into them. I've been so focused on getting the PFAS PAC database out. 
Is there anything else that you want people to understand about the PFAS Tox database? This is really meant to be a tool and a resource for quickly identifying studies. And it's not to represent or trying to misrepresent that there are more health effects or less health effects than we might have thought. In addition, another important aspect is that what you see right now are the results up until May of 2019. In January of this year, of 2021, we did conduct a literature search update. And when we ran that search, we identified 2,500 more studies that needed evaluated. So can I just be clear, do I understand that your database will be updated? It's not finished. It will be an ongoing updated project. So we know that we will make this first update for sure. And then past that, it's a little unclear right now. We certainly hope to be able to maintain it and keep it periodically updated. You had a lot of funding support to produce this work. Do you want to just give a quick mention to the people that funded and supported your work? Absolutely, because this project really couldn't have occurred without them. And those include the Endocrine Disruption Exchange, the Natural Resources Defense Council, UCSF's Program on Reproduction, Health and the Environment, Lancaster Environment Center at Lancaster University and NC State University in North Carolina. Do you think you'll do future work on this project or what's next for you? I certainly hope that we can keep funding this project and keep adding the database because it's a very important tool. In addition, I'm working on another tool with one of the collaborators, Dr. Anna Reed, that evaluates CFAS drinking water standards here in the U.S. and we hope to have that out as well. That'll be wonderful. I do know that there's different states in America with different levels and will that create a data map of that as well so you can see all the different levels in every state? That's exactly what it'll do. Not only the different levels but how those levels were derived and where the different decisions led to different final values. One of the things that I think is really great about the work that you've done and your team have done is that Not only is it free, but you make it downloadable. People can download for free. And that's really great because a lot of PFAS information or quality information is locked up behind paywalls or people have to pay to access it. And I think that's a really great thing that your team have been able to make the work free. Why did you decide to do it that way? For that very reason that people need access to this information. One of the things that we really prioritize is making the data available. When you come to the database, you have the option to download the study list. If you use certain filters and want to pick out just a select few studies to look at more closely, you can go down to the bottom. There's a button where you can choose to download a study list. And when you do that, it will give you an Excel sheet, and that includes all the citation information as well as the abstract. Excellent, but you can't download the whole article. You'll see the abstract only, correct? We have not made the PDF, like the actual studies, available. You can always link out to PubMed where you may or may not have access to the full text. In addition, we have a webpage on the Open Science Framework, and there's a link to that in the About page, and on that website, you can actually download the entire data set that is used to build the PFAS Talks database. 
the open science framework is where we're housing the data that goes into building this, but you're right that we're not posting access to the PDF, this actual study. So some of our audience will be able to access the full PDFs and and some won't. I mean, I can access it through my university because I've been a university student and I can access that way, but there are many articles that I can't access. And I imagine that would be the same for some of our listeners, but they can at least see the abstract and contact the authors if they really wish to look at it. Absolutely. And I think that most people will find, especially the authors that are publishing more recently, that they are more than happy to share. With these other not famous PFAS, like we all know about PFOS and we all know about PFOA, and there's been thousands and thousands of studies on these, but with the lesser known chemicals, often people have referred like regulators or government agencies They've often referred to the fact that there isn't any information out there on the alternatives, but your work would prove otherwise. Would would you agree with that statement? Absolutely. And that was one of the driving factors in building this because we just kind of couldn't believe that there was nothing. It really shocked me how many studies there were on a lot of these lesser known chemicals. Be the study that they want, or it might not always be the most ideal study, but certainly we are finding studies on some of these newer chemicals. And when we complete the literature update that we're in the process of doing right now, I'm certain that we are going to be adding additional studies to some of these more emergent, newer chemicals. Katie, thank you so much for talking with me today on Talking PFAS podcast and well done on the work that your team have achieved. Thanks for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thank you for all the work you're doing too and helping spread the word and educate people. Fantastic. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And as usual, you can catch the show notes for any extra additional information to today's discussion. The next episode of Talking PFAS podcast will be on Monday, the 26th of July. And remember, you can follow me on Twitter. I tweet nationally and globally about PFAS. Also, feel free to email me at talkingpfas at gmail.com. And remember, all information in today's episode is copyright. Please share the episode and the podcast, but please contact me for reuse permissions. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.